0: And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans, chapter 10. And I'm going to read and preach the first four verses this morning verses 1 through 4. And even though there's a chapter break, there's not really a break in the flow of thought here. Paul is continuing to talk about righteousness by works versus righteousness by faith those two ways to righteousness that we talked about last time. And as we'll see again, there's only one way to righteousness, and that is by faith in Christ. But there are also lots of other things we can learn from these four verses. We will learn some things about evangelism, about the relationship between predestination and prayer, about what it means for us to have a zeal for God, but not a misguided zeal, a misinformed zeal. And ultimately, we will learn about Christ, our Savior, and how he is both the end and the beginning for all who believe in him. But let's pray first, and then we'll begin. Our God, we pray as the psalmist prayed, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 4. These are the very words of God through Paul. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant... Of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Three points this morning. First, a point about Paul and his heart's desire in verse one. Second, a point about his fellow Jews and their zeal without knowledge, verses two and three. And third, a point about Christ, who is the end of the law, verse four. Let's look at what Paul says about himself and about his heart's desire there in verse one. Look at verse one with me again. Paul writes there, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul's making it clear to these brothers, these siblings in the family of God, these brothers and sisters in Christ who are reading this letter, that he longs for his fellow Jews to be saved. He longs for them to put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. He longs for them to receive the righteousness of God by faith. His heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is quite similar to what he said at the beginning of chapter 9. If you look there, chapter 9, verse 1, down through verse 3, he said there, "'I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh.'" Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his unbelieving fellow Jews. His heart's desire, his prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I think there's a couple things we can learn from this. First of all, I think Paul is a model for us here when it comes to evangelism. You know, evangelism actually does not start with telling people the gospel. It starts with wanting people to be saved and praying that they'll be saved. That's where evangelism begins. It begins in our hearts. It begins in our prayers. Desire and prayer are the soil from which actual evangelism sprouts. Of course, evangelism involves actually telling people the gospel, the good news of salvation from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. It involves telling people the news about God and his holiness and us in our sinfulness and Christ in his life, death, and resurrection for sinners and the way of salvation through repentance from sin and faith in Christ. That is the content of evangelism and it's, of course, necessary that we communicate that content, but we don't wanna do that in a way that is heartless, or prayerless. Our evangelism should not be a heartless evangelism or a prayerless evangelism. Rather, it should be like Paul's was. His heart's desire and prayer to God was that people would be saved. And his actual evangelism flowed from and followed that desire and prayer, we assume. Of course, he didn't just desire and pray for people to be saved. He also opened his mouth and told people the good news. And we should pray for boldness to do the same. But the point I'm making here is that in addition to boldness, there should be desire and prayer. Like Paul mentions here. So I would encourage you to pray and ask God that your heart's desire and prayer to him would, that, would be that people would be saved. And pray that from that soil, actual evangelism would sprout Second thing I think we can take away from what Paul says here in verse 1 is that, as I mentioned in the introduction, predestination and prayer go together. Predestination and prayer go together. The same person who wrote this verse also wrote Romans 9. The same person who wrote in Romans 9 about God's purpose of election and the fact that God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills and the fact that God has made some to be vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The same person who wrote all that in chapter 9 wrote that he prays to God that people would be saved. and He's not contradicting himself. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying that God predestined who will be saved And he's saying that he himself prays to God for people to be saved. The truth of predestination does not eliminate the need for prayer. Because prayer is one of the means God uses to bring about what he has predestined to take place. So to say that because God has predestined who's going to be saved, therefore I don't need to pray for people to be saved is like saying that because God has promised to provide for all my needs, therefore I don't need to work. I don't need to have a job. Yes, God has promised to provide for all of our needs, but ordinarily he uses means to provide for all of our needs, like our jobs. And so we should work, trusting him to provide for us through our work. It's true that God has predestined who will be saved, But one of the means he uses to bring about what he has predestined is our prayer. And so we should pray, trusting him to use our prayers according to his sovereign will. Predestination and prayer go together. They are friends. They are not enemies. And like Paul, we should believe the truth of predestination and we should pray to God that people would be saved. Third takeaway here from verse 1. I would say it's just another reminder of the power of God to change a person's heart and life. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This was definitely not Paul's heart's desire before he was converted, was it? Before he was converted, his heart's desire was to persecute the church. And now his heart's desire is to populate the church with new converts from among his fellow Jews. And the desire of his heart had changed because God had changed his heart. God had regenerated his heart. God had redirected the whole course of his life. And now instead of being a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, 1 Timothy 1.13, His heart's desire and prayer to God is that his fellow Jews would become Christians. And this is yet another evidence of the power of the living God to change a person's heart and life. Think of how he's changed your heart, your life as a Christian. If he can change Paul's heart and life, if he can change your heart and life, he can change anyone's heart and life through the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. So that's about Paul and his heart's desire. Let's look secondly now at what he says about his fellow Jews and their zeal without knowledge. Verse 2 begins with the word for. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For, that is, the reason I pray for them that they'll be saved is for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That, that was actually the Apostle Paul before he was saved. Listen to how he describes himself, his pre-conversion self. Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Paul said to the Jews in Jerusalem there, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And one more, Philippians 3, 5, and 6. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law. Blameless. So Paul says about his fellow Jews what he said about himself. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal without knowledge. And we can learn from this that zeal for God is not enough if it is zeal without knowledge. Zeal for God is a good thing, but if it's zeal without knowledge, it's actually a bad thing. And that's what so many of the Jews had. That's what Paul had before God changed his heart. And more broadly, if we could think more broadly for a moment, that's what many people today have who would call themselves religious. There are many zealous adherents to the world's religions. There are many who are devoted to, say, Islam or Judaism Or Hinduism or Buddhism. They are devout. They are committed. They are sincere. They are zealous. And yet we would say, based on the Bible, that their zeal is without knowledge, without knowledge of the truth, without knowledge of the true gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. And their zeal is not enough, since it is a zeal without knowledge. Just being religious isn't going to help you if it's the wrong religion. You can climb a tree all the way to the top, but if it's the wrong tree, that doesn't doesn't help you. You can climb all the way up to the top of the ladder, but if the ladder's against the wrong building, you're not where you need to be. Think of a sailboat race. In a sailboat race, speed is important, but direction is equally important. You can be the fastest boat on the water, but if you're headed in the wrong direction, you're going to lose. You're going to lose that race. Just because someone is zealous in their religion does not mean they're headed in the right direction. Zeal and sincerity and commitment and authenticity, those are important. But they actually become irrelevant if they are not according to knowledge, according to the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. As Christians, as those who are recipients of the sovereign mercy of God and the saving grace of Christ, I think this verse should prompt us to pray for zeal with knowledge. To pray for zeal according to knowledge. We know we're not saved by our zeal, we're saved by the zeal of Christ, But now that Christ has saved us, we should be zealous for him. Our zeal is not the cause of our salvation, but it should be one of the effects of our salvation. It's not the root, but it should be one of the fruits. So pray for zeal, for the fruit of zeal in your life. Zeal according to knowledge. According to the knowledge of the gospel and the word of God. Would challenge you to ask yourself... What am I zealous about? What am I zealous about? What things make my heart begin to pump with passion and interest? What do I tend to get most excited about? What am I most passionate about? Think about that. Ask yourself those questions. Pray for zeal for God in your life. Zeal inspired by the gospel and empowered by the spirit. Titus 2:14 Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works Pray for zeal with knowledge For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge Paul says and then he explains what he means by zeal without knowledge in verse 3 For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. First, he says that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God, and it was not an innocent ignorance, it was an inexcusable ignorance. Because as Paul said back in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God "...has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe." This was the righteousness of God that they were ignorant of. It was the righteousness of Christ, the gift of Christ's righteousness through faith in Christ. And yet the law and the prophets bore witness to that righteousness." So they were ignorant of it, but they shouldn't have been because they knew the Old Testament. It was an inexcusable ignorance. Then he says that they were, quote, seeking to establish their own righteousness. That's what we saw at the end of chapter nine. If you look up there, verses 31 and 32, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, their own works, their own obedience to the law. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. Like those Jesus was addressing in Luke 18 verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Or as Paul talks about in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you're seeking to establish your own righteousness, if you're relying on your own works of the law for your righteousness, And Paul says, you're under a curse. You're under the curse of the law. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Perfect obedience is what is required by a perfect God. The third thing Paul says about his fellow Jews is that they did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not repent of relying on their own righteousness and receive the gift of God's righteousness by faith. And this is part of what it means to become a Christian, isn't it? It means that you stop trying to establish your own righteousness and you submit to God's righteousness. You stop trying to work for it and you humbly receive it. You repent not only of your bad works, you also repent of your good works as what you're trusting in for your righteousness and you submit to the righteousness of Christ that is offered to you in the gospel. If we establish our own righteousness, as Zach said earlier, we can take credit for our salvation. But if we submit to God's righteousness, all the credit for our salvation goes to God and to God alone. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Like when Gideon and his men defeated the Midianites, that we heard about earlier, God pared down his numbers to only 300 men, so that they wouldn't boast in themselves, When they were victorious. Judges chapter 7 verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel boast over me. Saying my own hand has saved me. Listen to what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Along these lines. For consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If we establish our own righteousness, we can boast in ourselves. If we submit to God's righteousness, we can only boast in God. We can only boast in the Lord. You know, that's what we do when we gather for worship. We boast in the Lord. We don't gather to sing songs of praise to ourselves. We gather to sing songs of praise to God. We don't gather to hear about how great we are. We gather to hear about how great God is. We don't gather to celebrate what we have done for God, but what he has done for us. We boast in God, not ourselves. We do that together every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening. And that is good for our souls and brings glory to to God well we've heard about Paul and his heart's desire in verse 1 we've heard about his fellow Jews and their zeal without knowledge verses 2 and 3 let's look thirdly and finally at what Paul says about Christ and the fact that he is the end of the law look at verse 4 for Christ is the end of the law of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, obeying the law for righteousness as a means of attaining righteousness, Christ is the end of that way to righteousness. Seeking to establish your own righteousness by means of the law, attaining righteousness by works of the law, Christ has put an end to that way of attaining righteousness. Christ is the end of the covenant of works as a way of salvation. As our Confession of Faith puts it, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Then the Confession goes on to say, summarizing Scripture, man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, The Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So Christ is the end of the covenant of works and the beginning of the covenant of grace. There are two ways to heaven, as it were. There's the covenant of works, and there's the covenant of grace. And we can no longer get to heaven through the covenant of works. We already messed that up. Now that Christ has come, he has put an end to that way to heaven. Christ is the end of that way to heaven because he is now the way to heaven. He's a road-closed sign on the road of the covenant of works, but he's also a new road that takes us where we need to go. So he is both the end and the beginning. He's the end of the law for righteousness, the covenant of works, and he's the beginning of the covenant of grace, and through faith in him, we receive his righteousness. Through faith in him, we are saved. Now, to be clear, the fact that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes does not mean that he is the end of the law altogether for everyone who believes. The law of God still plays an important role in our lives as believers. It serves as a mirror and as a lamp It's a mirror that we look into and see our sin. We see how far we fall short of the law of God. We look at the law and we see our failure to keep it and are reminded of our need for Christ, for his own perfect law keeping and for his full atonement for our law breaking. So the law of God serves as a mirror showing us our sin, pointing us to our savior. And the law of God serves as a lamp as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105, showing us the path of obedience now that we've been saved, lighting up the path that we should now walk, lighting up the path that we now can walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the law of God still plays a vital role in our lives as believers. It's, not, it's, not, it's just not the way we attain righteousness Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As Paul said in Philippians 3, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Two final thoughts in light of this as we draw to a close this morning. First, let me mention briefly two don'ts with regard to the law. Two don'ts. Don't be afraid of the law and don't neglect the law. As a Christian, don't be afraid of the law. Remember what we sing together. We We're gonna sing it tonight, actually. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder and has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. You do not have to be afraid of the law of God any longer. As a believer, yes, it does convict us of our sin, but it no longer condemns us for our sin because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't be afraid of the law. But at the same time, don't neglect the law. Don't think that the law no longer applies to you. Don't think that because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, that he's the end of the law altogether. Don't neglect the law. Rather, embrace the law as a believer in Jesus Christ. Let it serve as a mirror to show you your sin and point you to your Savior. Let it serve as a lamp to light up the path of obedience that you can walk now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be a Psalm 119 Christian who sings with joy, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Don't be afraid of the law, but also don't neglect the law. Second and finally, lean on Christ from start to finish. Lean on Christ by faith for your justification. Rely on his perfect atonement and his perfect righteousness as the only basis for your justification. Do not seek to establish your own righteousness. Submit rather to God's righteousness. Lean on the righteousness of Christ for your justification. And lean on Christ for your sanctification, for your growth in godliness, your progress in Christlikeness. Do not rely on Christ at the beginning of the journey, but then rely on yourself the rest of the way. Rely on Christ all the way From start to finish, abide in him and you will bear fruit. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Lean on him for your sanctification. And finally, lean on him for your glorification. Yes, you must persevere all the way to the finish line, but you can only do that if he is preserving you and empowering you. And that is exactly what he's doing, exactly what he promises to do. So don't give up. Don't lose heart. Keep going. Keep running the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, the starter and the finisher. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So lean on Christ from start to finish. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the founder and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being the end of the law for righteousness and the beginning of the way of grace and salvation. We want to be zealous for you with a zeal that is with knowledge. We want to be a people who are zealous for good works and who love the law of God. But we don't want to try to establish our own righteousness by our own obedience to the law. Help us with these things. Help us not to be afraid of your law, but also not to neglect your law. Most of all, most importantly of all, help us to lean on you from start to finish. Help us to lean on you today and every day until that day. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's take just a few moments now to think and to pray about what we've heard, and then we will sing together.